This episode of The Moment is sponsored by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for simple payment solutions, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first 50,000 in transactions, fee free, go to braintreepayments.com slash moment. And uh, we just wanted to give you, the listeners, a quick heads up. Slate's Culture Gab Fest is coming to Chicago for the very first time. Join Stephen Metcalf, Julia Turner, and Dana Stevens as they discuss the most compelling cultural happenings of the week with a Q&A to follow. And I'll also say Dana is known as one of the nicest people on earth. So if you have a Q&A that might slightly make her have to answer in a way that she'd have to be snarky, that would be really fun. And that's what I would be preparing. The event will be recorded for an upcoming episode of the podcast. It's all happening Tuesday, September 22nd at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. Doors open at 7 and the show starts at 7.30. A very limited number of tickets will be made available for a pre-show cocktail hour. Tickets are on sale now. Slate Plus members get 30% off their ticket purchase. That's Culture Gap Fest live in Chicago, September 22nd at 7.30 p.m. For more information or to buy tickets, go to slate.com slash cultureshy. That's slate.com slash C-U-L-T-U-R-E-C-H-I. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian. The podcast will start in a second. I just want to quickly introduce my guest this week, Divya Narendra. Divya is probably best known. He's an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, which is a good thing. Most, most of the time you hear somebody's a serial something, it's bad. But serial entrepreneur, I think it's great. And uh, Divya is one of the people who started Harvard Connect, which was, you know, the... A rival social network to Facebook. He, along with the Winklevire, the people who were in that lawsuit with Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the movie Social Network is about uh, Mark and the Winklevire and Divya. And uh, we talk about that a bit. We talk about his life since. This is a great conversation. I find him to be a fascinating, smart, engaged person. I learned a lot talking to him. And uh, our conversation is going to start now. <laughs> Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Divya Narendra. Divya famously started Harvard Connection with the Winklevi and uh, has a new company called Sum Zero. You saw a version of him in Social Network. And um, I think you might be the youngest person I've had on here, but you've accomplished a lot. And I feel like you've lived... I don't feel very young anymore. <laughs> 33, you know. I don't know, man. Time is flying. But maybe Schumer is younger than you, or right around your age. She's probably around my age, yeah. Um, but like Amy, you've accomplished, you know, you've accomplished a lot. And you've also lived this, it seems to me, and I don't know if it feels this way to you, this accelerated up, down, up existence in a way where you've, you've had moments of crisis, moments of accomplishment, moments of failure that in the old days would have taken someone until they were in their 70s in business. Um, I think what helped was the fact that my ups and downs have happened in my 20s. Um, you know, so Harvard Connection, you mentioned. So I came up with that idea when I was 19, I want to say, maybe 20, something like that. And uh, it was super exciting till 21. Then the whole lawsuit <laughs> hit, right? But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I tell a lot of students now because they ask, you know, when's the right time to start a company? And there's something very uh, convenient about being, say, 21, 22, 23. I mean, if you're in your 20s and your business fails, you know, frankly, the worst thing that happens is that you're more likely to get an interview at a big corporation if you want that. That's, that's kind of a, you always have that backup. That makes sense rationally, but, but isn't another facet of being that age 
that you're, cause now you're 33 looking back on it, but isn't another facet of being that age that emotionally you feel the tidal wave in a very strong way when you're that age that, or did you not like did for, for you, were you able to have this sort of placid? For me, the whole experience was so surreal that, you know, even though part of me was really frustrated, part of me was also like, Hey, this is an incredibly unique ride that I may never experience again. Or if I do, it'll you know be different in many ways, but it was always kind of exciting. It sort of kept me up. It kind of made me want to get up in the morning. Um, and it, it was cause I've also had, you know, the, the, the regular nine to five job experience as well, you know, so I had something to compare it to. Um, and you know, I, I think for me, I just sort of took it as a learning experience and it helped me with my second business, you know, cause I just had so much more of a foundation of to go and do it all over again. Um, you were saying when you walked in here before the mic was on that, that you think part of the thing of being at a place like Harvard means, you know, to me, obviously you were a very high achieving person to, to, to get into Harvard, but you said also it sort of creates in you the expectation that you can. Well, there are a lot of successful alumni, obviously at, at the university. When I was there, the predominant path was medicine, banking, or consulting or law or, you know, PhD, some sort of you know, research of, of some sort. Um, and I didn't feel like I was personally a good fit for any of those things. So I come from a family of doctors, pretty traditional Indian. Both parents? Both parents doctors, both immigrants from India. Um, and so growing up, I, you know, I think their expectation was that I would, you know, maximize the risk reward of, of kind of my career by going in, going through one of those paths, you know, taking one of those paths. Um, but I never felt that good at any one thing growing up. Like I always felt like I was more of a generalist than a specialist. And for me, you know, when I, when I was thinking about like career plans, like post-college, what I'd do, entrepreneurship felt like a really good fit because, you know, it doesn't require you to be that good at any one thing. You know, I think it's one of these, like, if you can sort of think broadly about the world, find problems, and ultimately, if you like to problem solve, you know, you don't have to be the smartest person in your math class. You don't have to be the best at, you know, uh, you know, spending hours and hours in a lab. You don't have to be the most well-read. You know, you just, you just have to be persistent um, and good at communicating with other people. And, and I felt like that was a better path for me. You knew those things about yourself at a very young age? Well, I, I, well, I think so because... What I found, so I majored in applied mathematics. So going into college, relative to my peers in high school, like I was outperforming them in, in a lot of my classes. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Bayside, Queens. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was, on the ma- I was on the New York City math team. Home I, of, uh, I, the rock band Anthrax. There you go. From there Bayside, you go. Bayside, Queens, they are, too. They, they, they were also outperforming their peers, but in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to be the lead guitar player for a heavy metal band. Um, but... You know, I kind of realized when I got to college that there are a lot of people who are way smarter than me, you know, in, in the subject that I thought I was good at. And you didn't expect that? Um, it's not that I didn't expect it. I just, I didn't really think about what the career ramifications of that would be, of being sort of average, you know, in, in any given subject. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so, you know, my... Because, my, my because sur- in high school, I just want to cry in a little, in high school, you're saying you just knew you weren't average. 
relative to people in high school. But obviously when you get to college, you're competing with like a much more selective crowd. It's, I mean, things are just harder, right? Um, so whether you're, you know, going in, in sort of math or you're going into econ or you're going into whatever it might be, you're, you're, you know, especially at, you know, a top university, you're going to be competing with some pretty smart folks. And so my kind of mindset was always like, okay, I don't want to play that game because it's sort of a losing battle. Like I'm going to go focus my attention somewhere else. Um, and you know, entrepreneurship was for me that was kind of a more level playing field for me than a lot of these other things that I was seeing happen. You know, a lot of my other classmates were trying to get that internship at Goldman or they were trying to get that internship at McKinsey or they were trying to, you know, you know, frankly, those are really tough, you know, like you got to, you mean doing the job or getting well, just the job. getting the job? I think doing the job is a different story, right? Just like getting into Harvard is a lot harder than getting through Harvard. You know, I think that's sort of a common perception and largely true. Um, but yeah, I mean, the nice thing about building your own business is that you choose the space that you want to compete in, and you can find if you if you can find sort of white space, or if you can find a unique angle to a problem that's differentiated um, where you feel like you have a competitive advantage that is really exciting. And then you can go for it. And did you start, so you, you, I'm, I'm thinking about Gladwell's book where he talks about being uh, the last Gladwell book. He, he talks about, you know, being uh, not at the top of your class at a place like Harvard can be dispiriting to people. And can I, I mean, he uses Harvard as an example and he sure. uses applied mathematics as an example. He says, oh, does he? Yeah, but he says and physics, he says, if you're in the middle uh, of your class there, you are made to, you end up feeling not as smart as you thought you were. Plus your classmates are maybe uh, getting opportunities that you're not getting. And he was, he was talking about that. It can, if you're not built the right way, it can, it can be harmful uh, to you. But uh, when did you start sort of going, okay, or, or what is it about you? Do you think, whether it's how your parents raised you that, or just who you are, that you were able to look at look at that and instead of being like bummed by it, view it as opportunity. Is that just like who you are constitutionally always? I think some people are just born more resilient than others. Some people are more emotional than others. Um, and I think I always kind of saw myself as being like not the smartest guy, but very like even keeled. Um, and it's, it's really funny. Like when I look back at who I went to class with, like my classmates, class of 2004, like where, and then also thought about like, okay, of those, you know, who did really, really well, like who is, who kind of shot the lights out and who's sort of just languishing. And it's not necessarily who you'd expect. Cause there were definitely certain people who I like, you know, took classes with who I thought, man, that this guy's amazingly smart. Like this guy's straight up genius. He's going to like rock the world when he graduates. And there are other people who I never really thought twice about who are now running billion dollar businesses or, you know, kind of doing exceedingly well by any sort of standard career metric. The um, Mark you knew obviously was exceptional. Uh, well, so Mark just struck me as a guy who, you know, and I was saying this to you earlier, when I was in school, there were like literally five to 10 students I could think of who were doing anything entrepreneurial. And within the computer science department, you know, I would say most of the students at that time, you know, 03, 2002 to 2004, we're looking to get a job at Google because at that time it was a pre-IPO business. And, you know, I think everyone knew that, okay, this was going to, this was a company that was going to become a very, very big deal. Um, post IPO, let's get in early. Like there was that mindset, but very few people were starting 
startups that, you know, as we think about them today in the traditional sense or in the internet sense, right? So Mark, um, I didn't know personally, um, he wasn't in my social circle. So he was actually introduced to me through the brother of a guy that, who was my year. So it was actually an Indian guy. So his brother, two years younger, he was Mark's class. He introduced us, to, uh, me to Mark and then Cameron Winklevoss and I called Mark. Um, so we didn't know him socially. Like we didn't run into him. I'd never actually seen him before. Um, but when I met him kind of, I, I, you know, kind of looked him up a little bit. So he had a, a bit of a bit of a clash with Harvard, um, uh, building that hot or not yeah. application. Right. So it kind of, struck me that he was one of the few programmers of those who I had met just through my classes and through recommendations or referrals who did have an entrepreneurial sense and who wasn't simply like looking to go work at, you know, Microsoft or Google. Right. Um, and at that time that was rare and as crazy as it sounds now, because now the cool thing is to start your own company and go talk to VCs and, and you know, rent like a, a, you know, a flat in Williamsburg and, and have your friends kind of hang out with you and code, right? That's like the thing to do now. But back then that was not the template for success. Right. And you weren't looking to do it because it was like a cool thing. Uh, like, do you think part of that expectation from your parents that you were going to be a certain kind of success Yeah, made you know, well, if I'm not going to go that route, I'd better find a way to yeah. <laughs> like, did you say that? Uh, that was always kind of, uh, uh, you know, in my mind as being a somewhat like heavy weight and one that would get heavier with time. Because I think, you know, if you do come from a family where maybe your parents are professionals, you know, where there is some expectation that you're able to earn a living, like a good living, um, there's, depending upon how liberal your parents are, there's a deadline. There's an implied deadline. Now, whether that deadline is like, a month, a year, or a decade, you kind of have to figure out what that number is for you. Um, but, uh, you know, I think luckily for me, um, even though Carver Connection, uh, you know, and Connect You didn't turn out as planned, um, it was enough of like a positive experience where my parents stopped questioning my judgment. Well, by you know, any, as, by yeah. any metric, you did, you know, you... Uh, were financially successful and you would accomplish something and kind of help change the world in some way. So I don't know. Do you not think of it that way? Um, I I try not to think about it that way. Well, it's, it's to me, it's like in the past, you know, it's sort of the question for me now is like, what do I do next? You know, what's sort of the, well, um, yeah, I want to get to like, I want to get to sort of the emotional piece of this because a few things happened out of that. Obviously, first of all, one is I think a lot of people who listen uh, have a hard time figuring out what their calling is. I get asked this all the time. Yeah. Like, how do you know? Like, so you've, it seems to me like you decided to apply some kind of rational rigor, even to like the question of what do I want to be and how do I want at a very young age, did you have peers who were doing that too? Yeah. I think, I mean, everyone's got a plan. Um, to some degree. Now, a few, I don't think most people come to college or at least like, you know, good universities being completely clueless about, I mean, they have some interests, right? And now for some people, maybe it's sports for others. Maybe it's, I don't know, debating or whatever, but usually those fortes translate to some career, uh, some sort of, some sort of job, some sort of functional role. Um, and, and when I, you know, when I thought about it back then, it's like, well, what are those functional roles? Like what, what do people do when they're at their jobs? Well, they're either doing something say analytical, right. Or technical. 
And then you have other people who are really good at some of the softer stuff, communicating, um, building teams. Maybe some people are good at just being compelling or, or, you know, articulate, right? Like that's, that's a skill that absolutely applies to so many, you know, potential paths that you could take career wise. Um, some people are, you know, really hardworking. Some people are really creative. Right. And, and, I, and to me, like I kind of felt that entrepreneurship just combined all of those. It was a no brainer for me at the time to think that, Oh, like, you know, maybe I should get a job. Like, so what happened was after we launched uh, connect you, um, once we realized that Facebook was going to be the dominant social network and it wasn't going to be worth competing with Facebook directly, but rather that litigation was going to kind of take over that, um, you know, the twins decided to go row full time. Um, so they ended up pursuing the Olympics, which they ended up, uh, you know, they ended up in Beijing in 2008. I just got a job. Um, and so I ended up at Credit Suisse in New York. Doing banking. Oh, you got a job because you didn't get the, right, the yeah, litigation was hadn't cl- settled and you needed to exactly. do something. Exactly. I needed to do something. What did that feel like to you? Um, so I actually, you know, it was tough because it was just a lot of hours for one, but I knew at the time that I needed to learn certain things about just business fundamentals that I didn't have, you know, and, 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 and this was the other problem with like my college experience was a lot of the practical knowledge that you actually need working in finance, they don't teach you at all. So, you know, I, I, I like ended up, you know, I came to New York after college knowing literally nothing that, you know, one would expect to know if they were going into investment banking or, or some kind of financial field. So I had to learn all that from scratch. Um, but I knew it was a short term thing. You know, I knew it wasn't forever. And I and knew you it was had a confidence. Did you have at that time, like having had that whole experience? Did you have confidence that you'd find the next thing that would really like um, alight your pat, like you know, really fire your passion for? There was there was a moment, you know, where I just like things sort of clicked in my head as to walk us through that process. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, with Sum Zero, for example, which is your new company, which is my current company, um, I was working at a hedge fund in Boston. So this was my second job out of college, and I was there for a year. And in the summer of two thousand seven. Yeah, they call it July of 2007. Uh, the fund I was working at started losing a lot of money, um, hundreds of millions of dollars in mark-to-market losses because that time period coincided with the um, the crash in the credit markets. So this is before 2008, you know, where the equity markets collapsed, but the credit markets were having all kinds of issues the, the summer before. And so the guy who ran my fund decided to just sell all of his assets to another fund in Chicago, um, Citadel. So everyone was fired. So we were all let go. So you know, I'd moved to Boston. I was there for a year. The next thing I know, I'm like kind of out of a job. Um, but while I was working there, I kind of realized, you know, nobody has built any sort of tool for professional investors to share research. And what I, what I sort of saw happening was that even though, you know, if you think about the reputation of hedge funds, they have a reputation of being somewhat secretive and kind of black box like, um, the reality is that a lot of portfolio managers at funds and analysts at funds call each other on the phone and they talk to each other all they the time. They have idea dinners sometimes. They have idea dinners. Exactly. Um, but there was no centralized tool or repository to aggregate their thoughts and insights. Now, so how do you come up with that? So you're uh, even just getting granular about how, 
you because right what happens is you're you, you're dissatisfied one is dissatisfied with something and then tries to solve it did it start to yeah, blossom there, to you like this so I, there, there, what i realized was one the tool doesn't exist but secondly that it has enormous value because in that industry in asset management insight and, and knowledge are, are like it means everything right like that's that's your whole job is to formulate compelling investment ideas um, and make investments that generate positive returns, right? And and so if you have better insight than the next guy, like that is worth a lot. Um, so when you think about the value of one good idea in asset management, that's an enormous value proposition. And and it's true in all industries, like in the sense that, you know, good ideas mean a lot, no matter what the industry is, but particularly in asset management, because that's how you're Did paid. you think about at that time, though, one of the things that happened in that crash, because I want to know how you thought you'd overcome this and be able to talk and, and sell, is that research, uh, independent research and analysis, which was then packaged and sold, ended up uh, being considered faulty following received wisdom uh, and was sort of blamed for, you know, you look at the way those tranches were created. Like yeah. basically the people who, the, the organize, many of the organizations that were supposed to serve this function for banks fucked up really badly yeah, and, and fucked up in ways that were borderline criminal. And so it, it, it did make the whole sort of, um, it changed the way uh, research was sold and thought about for a long so time. So the banks um, represent, sort of the incumbent in yes. our industry right now. So what's wrong with the incumbent? Well, what I learned when I was kind of on at this job at, at, at this fund in Boston was that the research analysts at banks, um, A, do not have any stake in their positions, in their recommendations. So when you read a Goldman report and the guy says, go long Twitter, you have to keep in mind that that analyst at the bank does not have, own any shares of Twitter and he's not even allowed to. So if he's wrong, he doesn't lose any money. Right. He has no skin in the game. And you also have to look at the other side of it, right? Which is how is he boned and why is he, you know, does anyone want him to take that position? Which was... And that gets to the conflicts of interest, which yeah. is kind of the other problem with research coming from Wall Street, which is that analyst at Goldman who covers Twitter, well, Twitter happens to be an investment banking client of Goldman, right? So... Um, as much as Wall Street tries to create, you know, Chinese walls between their research analysts and their investment banking divisions, the reality is that in general, you're not going to see banks saying, uh, you know, anything overly negative about the companies that they're writing research on because they are their own clients. Um, so the natural question was, well, if you can't rely solely on Wall Street research, you know, what's your alternative? And at that time, you know, again, there, there was no notion of buy side research, which is research coming from investment professionals. Nobody had really ever tried to aggregate it. Um, I, I don't fully understand why. I think it's possible that um, a lot of the larger funds just maybe didn't want to share it or whatever. But did you study? So when you start to think about this, and I understand it's a great idea and I see why it is. But did you start to look at the ways in which because people, you know, Many sort of like independent research um, companies in these areas have, have started, maybe not exactly in hedge funds, but then certain pitfalls occur. Like you find out over time, not only confirmation bias, which always affects these kind of things, but charm offense. You know, you start to research companies, you start to get to know the CEOs. The, as you said, these are people who are, they have those skills you were talking about. They're good at 
structure, but they're incredibly charming and capable of selling. Like, how did, did you think about how to position yourself and how to build something that would inoculate you from those things? Yeah. So what we did was we created a very transparent community um, where members, first of all, they have to apply to gain access. So you can't post research on SumZero without going getting through our application process and our vetting process. Once you're on SumZero, um, your name is associated with everything you post on the site. There's also a peer rating system. So you know, it's, it's a fairly sophisticated community. So if you, if you try to post something that's, you know, poorly written or just not rigorous or just lacking valuation support or, or a catalyst or whatnot, you'll probably get, um, a poor rating from the community. Uh, and then we also, as a team, the sum zero team itself, like we QA the research to make sure that people are putting their best foot forward and they're not trying to game the system. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payments solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Muntree. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless and magical, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree is helping solve the problem of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. Check it out for yourself. Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo cards, more, all with a single integration across all platforms with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more, and for your $50,000 in transactions without paying a fee, go to braintreepayments.com slash moment. That's braintreepayments.com slash moment. So a a lot of people, I I, want to talk about just the, the, and I know you said uh, resilient, maybe not that emotional, but I do want to talk about when I could see a lot of people who went through what you went through. Um, and even though I think you're, I don't know whether you think it's fair or not, but you know, Max Minghella's portrait of you is a lot more sympathetic than uh, the Army Hammer's portrait of the Winklefi. <laughs> you come off much better. You know, it's you funny, come off much I've better. had people come to me and say, dude, your character was such a tool in that movie. <laughs> like I've gotten a wide range. Really? Of, he just is trying yeah. so hard to get to the truth and he sees yeah, it ahead yeah, of everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. and... Uh, first of all, did you think it was a fair portrayal? Yeah, I mean, I think the material, like sort of the, the bigger facts of the film, like the, the more important facts were per, like kind of accurately conveyed, but the personalities were dramatized. So, I mean, what I watching that film, like basically the portrayal was okay. You've got these three really preppy, privileged people on one side, and then you've got this dorky like. Jewish kid on the other side with his buddy and AE pie. You know, that, that, that was like the Hollywood, you yeah, know, although sort of, Eduardo was presented sort of as this other thing. Too, uh, right. He yeah. wasn't presented. He was, he was you know, sort of sympathetically at the was, end, he but was, in the beginning, he was, he was kind of for a, a big chunk of that film, I think portrayed as the a kind of a, a hero figure in the film. But then he also sort of gets played by Mark 
And then it's like, oh, is this guy smart or is this guy, you know, well, yeah, you, you, so I think everyone gets kind of a, a mixed portrayal in a way. But when you would walk into what I, I guess what I'm interested in is like so many people, you seem to have this ability to empower yourself. And so many people would look for the reasons to feel disempowered by this stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, because when you walk in a room now, you're, whether you're famous and that you get stopped on the street, your name is famous and you've been portrayed in this way. And I'm wondering if you made a decision to treat it as an asset or whether you had to learn to treat it as an asset or, or how it affected, you know, when you walk into a room to go sell somebody or en enlist somebody, how you, how, you, how you feel about this whole idea walking in ahead of you. So I never bring it up, uh, for one. I mean, I think in the age we live in, most people you know, liberally Google the folks they meet, right? There, there's more stalking happening now than ever before. And, um, you know, I think that's something that you just sort of have to get used to. But uh, when I do meet, say, new people, if, whether it's a prospective customer or partner or whatever it might be, like, you know, I don't assume that they, you know, care at all about my background, but, but hopefully, like, I'm coming to the table with something that's of value to them today, you know? And, and they take that seriously. And, you know, and so if you it don't helps worry so about it. So you, you, you never thought to yourself, Oh, um, they're going to think me and my buddies either were ripped off or tried to rip off or like, you don't, it's not an active part of, of how you, you feel like you have to, um, plan for the, for an interaction. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I would say if anything, I've sort of stayed under the radar, uh, relative to, you know, most of the characters in the film, um, or most of the real people who were, you know, involved in that whole saga. So a lot of times I sort of assume that people have no idea what my background is. Um, and I just, you know, treat them as I would want to be treated, you know, and, and, and hope that, you know, I'm given a fair shot at what, you know, whatever the situation might be. Right. And is that always been sort of right from the beginning, even when you were going through this stuff, you didn't, obsess about uh, you didn't obsess about it in the way that the the twins have sort of acknowledged that they've you know they've they've given interviews where it's been very clear that like this was the defining the years of litigation that was a sort of like the defining thing because it's interesting your choice to go take a job is a really interesting thing like you threw yourself yeah. well into i never something. wanted it to define me that was that's the thing like okay, so I, you I, made I, a choice I, I never wanted it to be my lasting legacy and and i sort of see you know I mean, actually, I remember when I first, um, before the film came out, I was more nervous than anything, just thinking to myself, like, man, is this going to, like, ruin my career for the rest of my life? You know, like, is, you know, is the portrayal going to be fair? Is it, you know, am I going to, so, uh, you know, I, uh, for me, the, the, the whole experience, especially the film, was more of a relief than it was a, like, oh, and now I have this awesome asset that I can use to go build my next business. Now, if it happened to have helped in certain ways, great. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, in terms of my day-to-day -day thinking, it hasn't affected my day-to-day -day thinking at all in terms of my expectations for, um, you know, my current business or future businesses or, you know. But are you someone, because you, you clearly think a lot about... Um business moves or you plan or not just your business moves, you, you like, you I mean, even the ability to step back and go, Hey, there are people better than me at math, but I have these skills. I'm going to become an entrepreneur when I find the, the right idea. Um, 
Did you take lessons from that experience about like partnership and about, I, I guess I'm wondering, can you, tr- are you able to be a trusting person? Are you able to form relationships, both business and personal following that or do the echoes of that affect you? So I would say post connect you. Um, and one of the biggest takeaways was actually to, to, to trust my instincts more to trust your instincts more. Yeah. 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 yeah, Great. Why? Because I mean the whole episode with Mark was, um, I would say a little artificial in that, you know, he wasn't somebody that we personally knew. He wasn't somebody we really vetted the way we would, like I would vet somebody today. If well, I was, that's a if perfect I was, example. If sure. I was entering a business partnership. And even at the time, I kind of felt like there, there was a communication gap between, you know, him and the three of us uh, in that, you know, it's, like if you're starting a business with somebody, you want it to be super transparent and fluid. Like if you have something pop in your mind as far as a new idea or a, you know, a change in plans or, or whatever, you want to be able to call that guy or email, email your partner and not have anything interfere with the conversation. Um, but at that time we were in such a rush to get Harvard connection up and running that we sort of let a lot of those, um, sort of steps kind of, you know, go by the wayside. Um, what do you think it is in like you, that wishful thing? Like, what do you, like, especially raised by doctors who have to be pragmatic. Like, what do you think all of us have this, you get older and you realize you have to watch the wishful thinking, but like, what, why do you think we do it? Like, well, everyone wants to think big. And I think, you know, entrepreneurs are natural optimists like that in terms of, you know, you know, I I don't, you know, you don't want to be that black rain cloud, negative Nancy. Right. So, and most, most, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, like you look at any sort of tech founder, whether it's Zuckerberg or Musk or whoever, pick your favorite founder. Um, they tend to think big, and that's exciting. I mean, that's, that's what investors want. That's what they want. That's what gets them up in the morning. Um, and, uh, I think you realize that, okay, it, uh, there's a chance, there's a good chance that your visions are not going to pan out exactly. But if that vision, if that end goal is big enough and you get halfway there, well, that's still a huge home run, right? <laughs> or if you get a quarter of the way there, that's still, so you think you have outcome. to have that, like, you have to have that thing where like, um, you can see the bet, you know, you invest in somebody, I don't mean financially, you, you, you sort of invest in them. It serves you to keep the thing moving forward, to imagine that they're going to come through for you as opposed to sort of taking a, a, a clear eyed look at it all the time, or I guess you have to do both maybe. And there's a lot of gray area in between those two. Right. Um, so maybe that experience kind of was sort of an exercise and mean reversion for me in terms of my willingness to, you know, give give people the benefit of the doubt and give them that extra bit of rope. But, um, I think at the end of the day, it hasn't changed the fact that, you know, I still like expect and want the best for everyone around me. And, you know, and And you still think stuff's, you, you still sort of believe in, in mission success. Yeah. yeah. You got to go into, I think, entrepreneurship with first and foremost, um, like a belief in sort of the ultimate impact of your ideas and your plans. And, and if you, if you feel like you could make a big impact, um, that gets exciting. And it, that's like the starting point, you know, then you can work backwards and, you know, do all the things that need to be done and, and, you know, build the teams and, and, you know, draft the papers and build a business plan, all that stuff. But the starting point 
should be, you know, a lightning bulb moment for you where you're just like, wow, like this would be amazing if we did. And that still feels what it feels like for you. And you don't, when you got this idea, like that's why I was here. I I was listening to, um, interview Chris Sacka gave to Tim Ferriss. I'm sure, you know, I don't know him. Um, but he, he, he said that if he thinks about the, the four or five best investments, the unicorn, the true unicorns, those founders had a kind of certainty in world domination that you can't fake. And any, any, you know, most people probably think when you get in a room with a, someone who can change your life, you should present a realistic front to them. So they, they don't think you're insane. And he was yeah. saying you, you shouldn't. <laughs> There's an argument for that. Um, and, and especially for, for VCs, right? If you're talking to a VC, um, you have to realize, uh, and I think all entrepreneurs should, should realize this. And, and most of them I would think do is that not all businesses are VC businesses, meaning not all businesses are the right types of businesses. I mean, it can be a hundred X business. Yeah. Like, like a venture capitalist, if you think about their business model, um, they typically own 20% of the companies they invest in. Right. And let's say for a given venture capital fund, you know, if they're going to make say 10 investments and they're going to need that one investment to effectively pay back all like the, the principle of the fund. So if they have a hundred million dollar fund, um, just given the statistics, right. One of those investments has to return them a hundred million dollars. If they own 20% of it, that means that has to be a $500 million exit. And now the other nine investments don't have to work out amazingly well in order for that fund to do well, but at least one of them does. Which is right? why you have to be in the room and be able to articulate to them. Exactly. Why you're going to be Why that. you're a unicorn. Exactly. And they don't want to, yeah. they, you're saying they would, it's an interesting like lesson and you know, it's so funny. It applies to almost any area. People ask about pitching a, uh, a show. They'll ask me all the time about pitching Hollywood. Right. And they, they're terrified. People get terrified about it. And, and I, I always say, well, you have to just really believe in it. You have to be able to really see the thing. Yeah. And you can have no doubt about what, the- and, and that's something they don't teach you in school, right? It's yeah, how did you the learn art that? of selling. Uh, how did you learn it? Um, well, I'm, I'm not going to say that I've learned it per se, but I, I think well, you were like, if to- I'm, if I'm excited about something, I'm pretty confident that I can get other people excited about that thing. Part of that is just, you know, I feel like, you know, I can break things down fairly simply. You know, if you're not good at explaining things and if you're the type of person who just throws jargon around, uh, which you see in a lot of industries, right? Like if you ever walk in a, onto a trading floor or you walk into a newsroom or you walk into a, a law, you know, legal office, where it's like the amount of jargon that gets thrown around is incredible. Yeah, right? There's this amazing quote by that David Mamet uses, but it's not his quote. It's by this guy, Theodore Veblen. Uh, Mamet credits Theodore Veblen, but the, the quote is, uh, every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. It, it is, you know, in and many the ways. the language yeah. is the tip off to that. They yeah. try, right? And so... Yeah, I mean, I, that was one of the reasons why, um, you know, I wanted to go to law school, actually, was because when I was 22, I was on conference calls with attorneys. And I remember at the time, like not knowing what summary judgment one was. I didn't know what a 12B6 motion was. I didn't, but, and these are very simple things, right? But like when they're couched in kind of bizarre jargon, you, you sort of sit back and you're like, wait a second. Like, am I totally clueless Dude, or that, something? That was <laughs> one of the, in the bucket of reasons I went, I went and graduated law school. And that yeah. one of the, re, one of the things was my, my friends who had gone and were, cause I went after a few years. Out. Yeah. 
they had this language that I didn't have and it drove me crazy. It, it, it is frustrating. Um, and I think, but I think when you're, when you're trying to, you know, explain something to someone, just being good at doing so in simple terms makes a very big difference. Well, you know? So you learned at a certain point that that fan, that, that, um, it's funny. So to assert playing to a certain audience, that kind of jargon makes you seem smarter, but then I guess to the audience that can really change your life, it makes you seem like arrogant, or, arrogant or yeah. like clueless, actually, yeah. like you're just using a bunch of words. Yeah. Do you think that that communication thing can be taught or learned or like, have you, have you seen people become good at it? Who, who weren't good at it? Um, I'm sure it can be learned to some degree, but I think some people are just more comfortable than others around strangers, you know, and, and, um, cause you, you do meet people who all the time where, you know, they'll, you know, like I have friends who I have to defend to other friends, you know, to say something like, Oh, well, you know, Jesse's really awkward around you, but when, once you get to know him, he's great. Like really sweet guy, you know, or like really, really funny or something, you know, but the people who I think are good at selling have to be good at, you know, that, that cold conversation, that cold email, that, that very spontaneous. Did you practice of, that or was it innate? Do you think I've always been, that's what I'm saying. That's why I kind of felt entrepreneurship was good for me. It was because like I felt equally as social as I felt nerdy or kind of more analytical. And know? even in your high school in, in, in Bayside, like until you were this Indian super achiever guy. <laughs> I don't know about that. But no, you were super. I was no, Indian. <laughs> you were Indian. No, but you were uh, obviously, I mean, how many kids in your high school class went to Harvard or Yale? It was three of us. Right. How many people? Uh, in your, well, went to Harvard. We had a couple good. How many people were in your class? But they Two, don't, 250. Uh, right. So you were a super achiever and, uh, were you able, were you also popular? Like, did they, I don't mean, I'm not saying in a way where you're bragging. I mean, were you in the social, were you in like sort of the, the social firmament of the school or were you not? Yeah. I mean, I felt like I got along with all, I, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't part of any one click. I mean, I felt like I could get along with, you know, the, 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 the athletic kind of jockish students to like the more creative ones and everything. Did you have good, did you have good friends? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still in touch with, you know, my high school friends and, you know, and some folks I grew up with. So was it easy for you, this, this skill of communication is funny. Um, you know, m- making this TV series about, which is largely about hedge funds. Um, uh, many hedge fund multi-billionaires, I won't name them. I mean, uh, have come in and talked to us. <laughs> yeah. And a couple of them have made this point that having that v- they said very few people can communicate up or down really well and can understand structurally how markets work. And that if you have both of those things, it's interesting you say that, um, that certainly true. I mean, cause then you're this sort of Jack of all trades, right? Um, I find that a lot of hedge fund guys do not communicate well. Um, and I think the industry allows for that because it's one of the few industries where you can do well without being uh, a team player per se, right? In that I think it's a job where one, the performance kind of, uh, you know, it's incredibly black and white who's done well and who hasn't done well and your compensation is tied to performance which is how your stocks are doing in the markets very black and white um and you can literally just research on your own all day 
not talk to anyone. And but you still have to get the pension fund to invest. It's it's so half the a most, billion. With so the you, most right? successful, the most successful guys are able to, I think, kind of market themselves in addition to being really good analysts. Uh, but there are plenty of examples of hedge fund guys who are not necessarily social, but very good analytically and are able to just rely on their own internal, just like their, their analytical abilities to do very well. Yeah. We keep saying guys and, and, and it is a largely just incredibly <laughs> yeah. male dominated, but no, it is. It really is. Yeah. Um, um, a male dominated industry. What just, because you've been around this, you've been around both sides of it, tech, VC. How do you see the, because it seems to me like the VC world is is even despite the laws and clearly it's also not um, uh, sort of gender equal in any way. But how do you, why do you think that the, the hedge fund world is so sort of like macho dominated? Because you're in it now talking to all these people. What, what, what is it about... The, that thing that sets up that way or why has it been so hard for there to become women who are allowed to put themselves you know become positions to become superstars um it's it doesn't have to be for, at all it, it yeah, should, I, can't, it should I don't be. understand that's why i'm asking you i don't but understand I, you know it. i think a lot of guys or <laughs> analysts at funds typically started their careers at banks uh and you know so i don't know if it's the hedge fund or asset management industry it really kind of starts before that in, in sort of just the financial industry in general. Um, you know, and historically that's also been male dominated. So from like a recruiting standpoint, when Goldman and Morgan Stanley and these banks come to, to university campuses and they recruit, um, you know, if anything, that's where they need to diversify um, and, and maybe think harder about, Oh, well maybe we should have a 50, 50 split. Um, and then you probably would see more women go into asset management. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to talk to these people. It doesn't make any sense to because me. from it a temperament like, standpoint. That's what I'm saying. It seems to me. It, it, yeah. it, well, what's interesting is that from a temperament standpoint, um, the investors that we read about in the news typically, not always, but typically, um, have a longer term time horizon. You know, so when you think of Warren Buffett, right, or you think of you know even like a Carl Icahn, like you know some of these guys. They don't. They don't. They don't trade, right? They're not like buying shares today and then selling them tomorrow, or you know, like some people literally buy a share at twelve p.m. and they sell it at one p.m. Well, you know? quant funds can quant funds do that, but but in terms of the fundamental world in general, longer term time horizon, and I do think there's almost an arbitrage in terms of just being patient. Just if you have if you happen to be kind of you know not overly emotional and too tied to the swings of the market. If you can just sort of think beyond that and clearly, if you have that kind of temperament. So you seem to have that temperament. Why haven't you started a hedge fund? Uh, I do invest on my own. Um, and that, and for yourself? For myself, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why haven't you taken in money uh, and done that? I, I mean, I don't have time. I mean, for me, you got you to gotta focus on one business full-time. If, if you're not, I, it's just very difficult to make any one you know, pursuit work. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But, you know, we're not just for Jews. We also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even, occasionally, offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people. Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. You can listen to Unorthodox each week on iTunes.com slash Panoply or at TabletMag.com. 
So, so let's talk about the, you know, you, you started to say before, and, uh, and I said we'd get to, which is at the, when you came out of the other side of that, uh, you know, when the roller coaster ended and you guys got major settlement and how did you sort of, um, heal yourself from the, like the, the disappointment of it and then decide I'm going to risk trying to do yeah, just by keeping busy. You know, and, and just cultivating so, my mind, you know, I, so uh, that's after, important because people yeah. always say like big disappointments like that. Sometimes people use them as an excuse to not do anything the rest of their lives. Now I know it wasn't a disappointment. You made a, a fortune, but you know, um, maybe not relative to Mark, yeah. but you know, <laughs> relative to the world, <laughs> you know, you, you know, relative to the world, you made a fortune and you, uh, achieved what, you know, most people never get to get to achieve, but still it was a huge disappointment. And, um, you said you cultivated the mind. So what does that look like? How do you, do you journal? Do you meditate? Do you take, what does what what that pro- process look like for you? Uh, so one, I went back to school. Um, so I, I went to law school and business school. And that was really to cultivate my kind of professional mind, you know, kind of to sort of just pick up those skills that I didn't learn in college. Um, it wasn't to get a job. It wasn't to, and I actually didn't do any recruiting in grad school. Um so it was just to kind of become a better, more seasoned. Did you allow yourself to feel bad at any point? Like, did you allow yourself? It's not my nature. Right. So See, no, this just is... the, it's just not my nature. Um, cause I feel I'm a very forward looking person. That's great. And, and that, uh, I think helps, you know, a lot. And it's situation. not denial for you. It's just actually, no, just I mean, by now like, it would have hit like the long tail of this thing would have yeah. hit. It's just literally, you're able to, to, to not think of, you're able to make yourself not sort of think about the negative. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't getting That's any awesome. younger, uh, and I knew that, and I, and I wanted to just make the most of my time. Uh, and so for me going to school and then simultaneously building the initial prototype for some zero and using school as this laboratory almost to figure out exactly what some zero would be and also raise capital for it. So you're at the hedge fund and then you decide in 2007, then you decide to go to school. Yeah. Where'd you go to? So I went to Northwestern. Right. Um, so moved to Chicago, uh, and just juggled school with some zero, you know, and, and, and I think thinking deeper into what our monetization plan would be and just how we would turn it into a real business. Um, and do you think you can do a a startup? Would you, so you, would you, uh, where do you stand on the whole issue of, um, Dropping out of school versus staying in school to pursue something. You felt like totally you a function of the opportunity. Uh, How'd you do that math? Well, you know, look, if, if you feel like you, you're able to build a prototype quickly enough and release it where you're getting really good positive traction, uh, where it would make sense to leave school, then great. You know, go ahead and do that. Uh, in general, I wouldn't recommend leaving school for most people. I think it's, it's actually more often than not kind of a bad decision because what you gain from school is, is uh, sometimes hard to quantify, but a lot of it is sort of social learnings, kind of just being in a community and interacting with that community. Um, and then a lot of knowledge that I think has kind of a longer term benefit. Um, so when I went to grad school, I, I mean, I, what I sort of thought in my head wasn't, okay, what's the ROI of going to graduate school? It was, you know, in 20 or 30 or 40 years, am I going to want to be able to look back and say that I did that? And the answer was yes, you know, and, and, and so. And then did you pursue, when you were in the both college and law school, 
did you allow yourself to study the things that interested you or were you always like, yeah. oh, this is going to be practical? Like, how did you, how did you in, in, that in law school? Um, I was because I, I wasn't recruiting for a law job. So I, so I didn't care about, you know, what my yes. law school GPA would be because I wasn't trying to get a job at Sullivan and Cromwell in my, you know, for that first internship or whatever. Uh, so I was able to kind of take classes that really interested me. Um, I actually got to do a senior research thesis uh, where my advisor was the former chairman of the SEC because he happened to be a professor at Northwestern. Um, and that was directly beneficial to some zero because it just helped me understand the well, legal and, and regulatory framework. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so you, did you get, did you go and did you finance some zero yourself or did you go raise and, money? So I did for the first year and then, um, we raised a little bit of money in 2009 and then just as I graduated, uh, actually the twins invested in our seed round and that in, round in Bitcoin, obviously they paid in this Bitcoin. This was pre-Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. This is before <laughs> Bitcoin was even in the news. Um, but, but we became their first venture investment and that closed just as I graduated. So the timing kind of worked out <laughs> really well where they retired from rowing just as I was finishing up school. And so they invested with you. Yeah. And are their partners with, are they still your partners in this? Yeah. So they're, I mean, they're minority holders in the business, but, um, you know, we, we keep them up to date on how the business is going. And if, what's your advice like to, to young, uh, entrepreneurs, just a very specific thing. Um, do you sort of believe in, in the idea that like you should go as far and as long as you can before taking outside money, like get your pro like, you know, because it seems like you were talking before we started just the beginning of this, you know, everybody, like so many people are trying to do this now and they sort of can think of it as a, a lottery opportunity early on or they, yeah. how do you think I, people I, should? If you're serious think, about running yeah, a business that yeah. is going to last longer than your, your life, right? Um, you know, I think putting in as much sweat equity as possible up front is a very good thing. And the fact is, is that 99.99% of businesses are not venture funded. I mean, if you look at any of the large, you know, um, businesses internationally, especially like none of those are venture backed businesses. A lot of those businesses have just endured decade after decade and have been built in a very sort of slow and steady kind of way. Um, and so if you can do that, you'll probably have, you know, better control over your business, um, and not have to deal with, you know, investors who you don't necessarily know that well, breathing down your neck, trying to alter the course every time there's a hiccup. Um, uh, on the other sense. hand, if you feel like that capital is, if you have a really good use of that capital, I think the, the challenge with startups is that, you know, a lot of times you don't know where to invest the money, right? There's the initial startup cost, which is, Oh, I got to hire an engineer, um, or, oh, I need somebody to help me with sales. But people nowadays are raising, you know, millions of dollars in their seed rounds or their, yeah, a, they their don't series know, A right. rounds. And they have no use for that capital. They don't know what that, or I mean, they, they might think they do, but a lot of them don't um, and, are, and are basically just sitting on a lot of capital and spending it on like a really nice office or they're spending it on just things that aren't, that compelling or they're just throwing darts, you know, and they are just randomly right, you think wait until, you know, I think I, when you know what the formula is, you got to figure out that formula. Like what's the formula. 
then you can invest heavily into it. And that's when you, you, you should probably think about raising. Well, which would also enable you to walk into a room and actually tell those people with confidence what you're going to exactly. do, which will exactly. enable you to really yeah. raise what you should and then make the right deal with them so they yeah. don't own more of it than they ought to. How did a measure of financial security change the way you thought about organizing your life? Uh, it, it just gives you, uh, I think, uh, it gives you more time to think about what you want to do that's going to be good for you in the long run, right? So I, I think people who have been, who have had an, an initial success or, you know, maybe they've had a good exit, um, for them, you know, their next go at things, uh, they, they can spend more time to think about it and they don't have to rush into, um, something that they don't necessarily fully believe in. Is that, so is that where you, cause you were still young when, when you got, I mean, you're still young, but you were young when you got, you know, um, when you made money and you know, the, that would mean if you wanted to live a certain way, you wouldn't have to work. What did you consciously say to yourself? Okay. I'm going to really figure out how I want to live. I'm not going to be reactive. Uh, reactive as in buy a bunch of Lamborghinis or, yeah, or like, yeah, or like just, yeah, th that, yes, th th that, that you're not just going to sell these, but also that you were going to steer your own ship forward. You weren't going to have to take a job. You weren't going to have to go to school. Like, yeah. It helps in, in the sense that if you wanted to be an entrepreneur, it makes it so much easier to, to really pursue that dream because now, you know, you don't have to take that law job or you don't have to take that. Um, you know, whatever the banking job. Did you splurge you can, on anything? Did you buy anybody anything crazy? Your parents, your parents, I mean, were successful, so you didn't have to buy them well, a house. So what's interesting is that, you know, so when we signed that settlement agreement, a large chunk of it was actually in stock. Right. So, which is good. For which, you. which was great for me. And, and then, well, it's interesting. We say that now, but uh, what happened was we received this settlement and then the markets collapsed. Right. So if you think about, okay, the, the public markets drop 40%, what's going on in the private, private markets? Market, right. You yes. know? So we were seeing private prints of Facebook shares on, in, in the private markets, you know, trading at like, you know, a few dollars per share. Yes. Um, you know, well below kind of the, the valuations that um, I think we're familiar with now. Right. So you think so you couldn't just go splurge if you wanted to. And so. you're locked up, right? right? So I think there's this kind of myth of paper wealth being the same as real wealth. It's not, right? There's a big difference. So you mean between, you had years to get used to it before it actualized? Yeah. I mean, there was, there was quite a, a gestation period, if you will, where, you know, I had to sort of deal with a lack of liquidity um, and a lot of uncertainty as to what, this settlement was actually worth, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and, and so, you know, again, I, I think the mindset was like, okay, this is great that this has happened. Uh, if it works out uh, one day, awesome. But in the meantime, like I'm going to go thing. start, I got to do something else. So know? what's, what's the character of your day look like now? Like, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Like, how do you organize your day? How do you, when do you have your time to think, like, do you have thinking time, like time that you, think and plan? Do you, like, how do you structure your uh, life? So I think about the business as much as I can, um, when I'm not at my desk. Uh, and so, but yeah, no, I try to get to work, at, you know, nine o'clock kind of normal hours. Um, and I've been trying to recently just like be more physically active kind of after work. Uh, so whether that's 
running or doing CrossFit or, you know, playing tennis, whatever it might be. Um, that's helped me to take yourself away from it. Yeah. And it helps me pace myself because what I sort of see happen quite a bit and, and certainly read about are these like startup, you know, kind of like these comets that fly through the sky and then you don't hear about them again. Um, and I, I wouldn't want that to happen to my business. Like I really do want some zero to outlive me. And I think kind of having a consistent approach to your day, like, you know, working hard, and, but working smart and not overworking um, and making sure that you feel like fulfilled in other ways outside of your job are actually really helpful in you terms mean, so of being, exercise, interpersonal relationships. Exactly. Right. Um, traveling, whatever it might be. Like if, if you're doing that and, and you've got sort of something outside of your job to, that makes you happy, it, it generally will aid you in your job as well. Cause you don't feel overwhelmed by the pressures of, growing a business, which are very high. I mean, you know, the stuff I do think about when I'm thinking about work is how do we double sales? How do we triple sales? How do we get to, you know, like whatever that next plateau might be. And it's, it's not trivial. I mean, it's, it's hard. Do you, you, when you, do you look at, do you follow sort of like, I mean, I'm sure you do it in some way, but do you follow the tech startup world? Like when the Snapchat thing was going on, do you look and think like, oh, those kids, they don't really to, like... To me, it's more entertainment than yes. something right. that I follow for like inspiration or, or like any direct relevance to my business. Uh, because this the sort of... feel nostalgic the, the, in some the, way to you. Yeah, it's it's kind of a little nostalgic at times. Um, but it, it, a lot of it's kind of funny. You know, like now there's this show, Silicon Valley. It's Alec Berg, who I love, makes that show, yeah. You know, it's just, it's kind of, it's just entertaining, I think. Um, you know, we're not, so I run a business where, you know, we can't go to our investors and just say, yeah, we had really good page views this month, therefore we're doing awesome. Right. Like we have to make payroll, we've got to pay, you know, we actually have to make money. And you consciously um, didn't want um, an ephemeral, a business that dealt in sort of ephemeral We didn't want a fad. Thing. Didn't want right. to create a fad business. Um, and I think, you know, every entrepreneur should be thinking in their head, how do I create an enduring business, right? With real competitive advantages and, and you know, uh, like that should be the, the aim, right? So um, some of these businesses that, re- that you, know, you read about in the press um, will be around for a long time and many of them will not. <laughs> but, uh, yes, you know. I, yeah, and, and, and you're, so you're like watching it and sort of do you I handicap do it for it, yourself? Yeah, do, yeah. You, do you handicap it for yourself? Like I, do you in your own head have a scorecard where you think like, this seems like it can work. Do you ever, are you ever tempted to VC? We joke around about it with like our, you know, me and the guys on my desk, you know, kind of my colleagues. Um, I don't typically like publicize my views on. <laughs> no, I'm not asking yeah, for yeah. your views. I'm <laughs> saying, but you and your, but I can see from your smile that you do. Yeah, you, yeah, it's we do, a, yeah. you do look at the horse race. Yeah, Cause like I, you know, every now and then you'll, you'll read something in the papers about, you know, a startup or whatever. Where you're like, that company is going to, going to be a bagel one day. <laughs> When, it's just a matter you, right, of time. That's so funny, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you look at uh, when you look at Facebook and what's happened, do you um, do you have any sense of pride or like any sense of I know ownership, but any sense of like, hey, I was a part of this? this yeah, absolutely. Thing. I, I think um, it, it's do it's, you root for it's it? It's great. Yeah, I do, um, and, and not just for kind of you know personal reasons, but. Um, you know, sort of this idea of, of connecting people all around the world 
has like so many positive sort of, you know, consequences. And, um, I think once you have that captive audience kind of using that base to achieve great things, um, is, is very exciting. And, and you sort of see that with how the, that business has evolved into sure. so many different things. Are um, you, do you use Facebook? Oh yeah. Yeah. Facebook is, uh, it, it's almost, we're at an, we're, at, we're, at, we're, you know, at a time where if you're not on Facebook, people question like, you know, it's like you're sort of an outcast. And Twitter, like there's something you, wrong. Right. Twitter, I don't use that frequently. Um, Twitter, I'm sort of still grappling with. And, and so. uh, have you, uh, have you run into Mark? You know, I saw him, uh, when was this? I'd gone back for reunions in my five year and I, we just like crossed paths walking down uh, Mount, Mount Auburn street. And what'd you do? <laughs> Nothing. I'm just like, <laughs> I was like, was that Mark? I think it was. Mark. You didn't say hello. I, we, I didn't say it like happened so quickly that, um, we, we didn't even get a chance to talk. And did neither of you Facebook status it? Like I just walked by. No, no, no. <laughs> Cause that would have been great. That would be kind of funny. Yeah. Probably but would you, would you have a beer with him now? Like, would yeah, you talk yeah. to him? I mean, the thing about this, this lawsuit, right. Is that people, especially maybe because it was such a publicized lawsuit, you know, I think the layperson sort of might have a tendency to put us on opposite ends of a spectrum. Like, you know, it's like two boxers in a ring or something like that. Whereas in reality, um, it, we had no choice. It was sort of like either we pursue litigation, um, or we don't. And like the whole thing just disappears and that's that. So you don't so have personal, like, you don't have personal, personal anim- no, you don't have personal animus. No. And in fact, I never lost a minute of sleep. Um, since this whole thing went down, um, it was kind of like, okay, well, what do we do now? We didn't really have much of a choice. And then the lawyers got involved and it just, it went on for years. I mean, this is, this is a, a lawsuit that started in 2004 and ended really in 2011. So we're talking about, you know, seven Dude, I, years. I'd lose sleep if I lost my parking <laughs> ticket in the garage. I mean, you didn't lose. Those things can be a lot more aggravating, strangely. You, uh, like I got a ticket the other day yeah. for crossing a red light on a city bike. And I was stunned. I couldn't believe that. That annoyed you. That blew my mind. I was like mad at the the, the NYPD. I was mad at de Blasio for like, I just couldn't, couldn't even understand what, like how that was possible that they would enforce something like that. Literally I'm getting this ticket and there's a dude on a bike crossing on the wrong side of the road. I'm like, what about him? Maddening. I mean, it was just like, no, no, that's maddening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not as maddening as somebody, you know, if in your mind stealing the billions of dollars, you know, at, $100 billion True. I mean, company. I, I, at Probably the time, yeah. it wasn't billions of dollars. Actually, it's funny. I mean, at the time, you know, we sent Zuckerberg a cease and desist three or four days after we heard about Facebook launching. Right. There were just a few thousand people on it, maybe. Um, so I think people, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, um, some of the more negative comments I've gotten are people come saying, oh, you guys just sued Mark for money or you know, you're, you're just trying to rein in on, on the Facebook prey. But the reality is like we started pursuing, you know, some kind of legal recourse before anyone had heard of Facebook. Right. It was, it was a very local phenomenon at that time. 
And 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 even then, it was like you well, know, again, I still think a great thing about the movie, and I think the movie, uh, you know, is a, a truly great movie. Fincher and Sorkin did an incredible thing, and I, Jesse is uh, amazing. As is Max. I've met him, and he. I've met Max also. Um, me too. I know both those really guys. Really cool They're guys. Great guys. Yeah. They're both Jesse's great guys. like a guy from Queens, kind of like me. <laughs> Jesse's the best. He's in one of my movies and I've known him a lot. I think yeah. he's uh, phenomenal. But a great thing about the movie and I think about the story is that um, you can come away from that movie truly believing that Mark really believes he didn't do anything, that he really didn't do anything I- immoral and that you guys genuinely believe you were wronged. And that nobody's lying, like consciously lying. That is, I, 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 that is my own, like, I think everybody has a legitimate gripe and a legitimate version of. Yeah. And that's a testament to Sorkin, I think. Yeah. He did a great job job, writing it, but also you guys were all, I mean, this is a story about a bunch of remarkable people who've gone on to continue to do really interesting and important work. And a moment in the zeitgeist when it was the exact right time for something to explode, yeah. right? Part, I mean, part of the zeitgeist is the fact that mobile phones with cameras became uh, a commonplace thing just as these websites were launching. And there is no question you had an idea. And I just think it's, you know, it, you, there sort of, um, if it were, you know, this it was a stipulated to fact that you did have an idea to do a social network started at these... Ivy League schools, right? I mean, yeah. that was your idea. That did was, you write it down originally? Uh, when you first no, had the, the idea, what did you do? the first person I actually did was, I, um, what did I do? I, uh, so, okay, so interestingly, there, there was, um, I was a junior at the time. Uh, one of my friends was a senior, and he was one of these programmers who had a job at Google pre-IPO. Right. <laughs> so he was the first person I, co- I told. Um, and then it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that I, I asked the twins uh, or told, you know, started... Cause you know, to me, I was thinking, okay, this would be amazing, but how do we market it? You know? And, and I thought they were, I would say more socially connected yeah, than sure. I was. Um, so I reached out to them. Cameron was, uh, uh, he had become a friend of mine cause we were in the same Spanish class freshman year. Um, so I'd known him. Do you him. think if you'd gone to another programmer, like, do you think it had to be Mark? I'm sure you've asked. So I can't this speak question. for all these developers, but uh, I, I do think he, you know, was unique in that, uh, you know, he 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 was probably more entrepreneurial than the other developers were. I mean, I had gone through three other developers before I got to Mark. Right, so he wasn't the first programmer that I reached out to, but all three of them just kind of flaked out because they were too worried about their senior thesis or they were worried about finals they're worried about things that though important not probably not that important in the grand scheme of kind of their careers we'll wrap it up but do you uh are you someone who believes in destiny or in your own sort of agency to make things happen or a combination of those things i I think we make our own destinies i I think if you're an entrepreneur you kind of have to believe that um i'd hate i'd hate to you know like reflect on my life and just think it was, you know, ordained or something, you know, like I, I, I want to be able to chart my own path and surprise myself. Um, so without getting too philosophical, um, no, I, I, I think, I think you, you, we all have that power to kind of get out of whatever mold we're in, do something different. Um, 
you know, make the most of whatever we've been given. What a great note to end on. Um, yeah. If people want to find you, how can they find you? Uh, at Divya Narendra, also on Facebook. <laughs> so they <laughs> can follow name. you on Facebook. <laughs> exactly. And um, if you want to find me, I'm Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me uh, if you have any thoughts about any of this at themomentbk@gmail.com. I always say don't send me screenplays or TV ideas. Also, no uh, business plans. I will not forward them on. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. To be a thanks, man. This yeah, is thanks really for great. having me. It's really fun.